Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The mayors of Toronto and Ottawa could soon have more power at City Hall. More reaction to a delay in Hamilton's downtown arena project. A Hamilton organization is dealing with a significant funding shortfall. The stifling heat wave is sticking around in Hamilton. As airports continue to deal with more turbulence, many Canadians are postponing their travel plans. And remembering the Apollo 11 moon landing. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Word is Doug Ford is planning to give the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa more powers similar to how things are run in the United States. And as you can imagine, critics say this move is going to dilute the powers of municipal councillors. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, welcome back to the show. Hey, good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. What are you hearing in the halls of Queen's Park about when we might hear more details on this? Well, we're not expected to hear more details until about August. Um, Sometime in late August, the Association of the Municipalities of Ontario is set to meet in Ottawa. That's when all of the mayors, a lot of uh, councillors as well, will go to Ottawa to have a face-to-face meeting with uh, the the provincial government. And, and, you know, a lot of frank and honest conversations happen there. So we're hearing that there could be some kind of a revelation there, uh, which will happen in the latter half of August. Or it could be, you know, encoded in some kind of legislation, which would have to be uh, if the government wants to make this law. So sometime in August is when we're expected to get more details some are trickling out but the government hasn't fully fleshed out exactly what this is going to look like yet which is why um you know the details are a little bit scarce right now speaking of the why and this is going to be the hard question to answer uh because this isn't the first time this premier has tinkered with municipal politics but why do you think he's doing this move Well, I I think Doug Ford has always been frustrated by the municipal system. Remember, his brother was the mayor from 2010 to 2014 of the city of Toronto and and always felt like they couldn't really push an agenda forward because there were a lot of contrarians uh, at city council. Uh, Same thing when, you know, Doug Ford was a city councillor during that time and also felt that level of frustration, right? Because when you take a look at the mayoral system and the municipal system in Ontario or Canada, uh, um, the mayor is only one vote among the entire council. So right now in Toronto, as an example, he's one of 26 votes. He has no additional powers to drive forward legislation. Every time there's a city council meeting, the mayor can pick a a particular um, item to be, you know, the special item that they debate first and they pass first. And he has, uh, you know, wide ranging powers in terms of, you know, uh, constructing the makeup of the um, executive council, which really, you know, nothing comes to the floor of council without going to executive council. But beyond that, he doesn't really have a say in terms of, you know, making sure which pieces of um, uh, of bylaws get passed and which do not. And I think that for Doug Ford has always been a source of frustration. It's been a, fr- a source of frustration, I think, for a lot of mayors. Um, and, and now it seems like Doug Ford is going to be making some, some kind of a move to remake city council. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. Toronto City Councillors had a chance to react to this uh, last night and they weren't too happy basically saying that their constituents voice is going to be somewhat muted. Do they have a point? Well, you got to take a look at the, the verbiage here, right? Rick? This is being called a strong mayor system. So obviously there is 
that, that strength comes at the expense of something. And, and that expense comes, uh, you know, at the cost of city council, right? So if you take a look at New York City as an example, the mayor of New York City uh, has some additional powers, uh, you know, compared to the mayor of Toronto. So the mayor of New York City can set the budget, whereas here in Toronto, it really is, a, a, you know, an all council process uh, to really vote on what goes in the budget and what does not. The mayor in New York has that power. Also, when city councillors in New York pass a bill, it has to go to the mayor's desk. The mayor then has 30 days to either sign it into law or the mayor can veto that bill, send it back to city council for retinkering. Now, city council does have some kind of a power there in New York. They, If two-thirds of city council says, no, we thought that this bill was good, and they pass it, you know, they could push it back to the mayor and, and back and forth they go. So that veto power, that's one that does not exist in Toronto. And that's one that I've been told is under consideration for the mayor of Toronto and the mayor of uh, Ottawa. And that would mean that, you know, if a city council uh, passes a bill and it comes from the left, as an example, and the current mayor is more right leaning, that mayor could veto that that bill, even though you know, a majority of council might support it. So, you know, they might have a valid argument there. And I have a feeling that this will touch off a, a new battle just before the municipal election. Running running out of time, but I want to squeeze this one in. Um, for the moment, it appears just Toronto and Ottawa will have these new powers, or at least the mayors in those two cities. What's the likelihood, if, if this is successful, that it will just filter out to many other communities? So I, I've been told as of right now, they're still working on the scope of this legislation. That scope includes what the powers will look like and, you know, which municipalities it could apply to. So this could be only Toronto and Ottawa. It could also be other municipalities. Uh, the government, I think, is still working on finalizing what this ultimately will look like. Should be uh, very interesting when it all comes down. Colin, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello chiming in on Doug Ford's apparent plan, hasn't been made official yet, to give the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa more powers. It's also the focus of our Twitter poll question today at AM 900 CHML. Should mayors be given greater authority over how their cities operate? Vote now on Twitter at AM 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It was a scheduling issue and a staging issue that was largely affected by the scope of the project, which as is now becoming much more public, is, is significantly larger than what was originally agreed to in the deal we signed with the city. You are listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of Jasper Kujavsky, who joined us earlier this week. is the Arena Project Director with Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, the uh, entity that is renovating Hamilton's first Ontario Centre. And as we heard earlier this week from Mr. Kujavsky, um, the original plan was to start this uh, project later on this summer, this fall. But as you heard on Good Morning Hamilton, that changed when the plans went from a $50 million project to one that will be worth between 100 and $200 million. City of Hamilton, obviously, keeping tabs on all of this. How are they reacting to the postponement? Matthew Grant is a director of communications and strategic initiatives with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Matthew, welcome to the show. We really appreciate it. How does the city feel about this delay? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I'll put it in context. The delay that we are, are, are talking about and was on the radio the other day, the potential delay, is in reference to um, significant investments in public facilities. 
So when an original agreement was signed with the HUPEG group, it was uh, a minimum of $50 million investment in First Ontario. And now there's discussions of that becoming significantly higher, which I think would only benefit the community um, and users of the facility. Um, we're, we're quite excited um, at the prospect and uh, excited to uh, see what transpires. So this is a case of short-term pain for long-term gain? Sure. Uh, I mean, to, to put it in perspective, um, you know, this, this has been um, a very long project. Um, you know, December 2017 is when Council first approved uh, a motion to direct staff to investigate opportunities for a private sector-led redevelopment of First Ontario Centre. You know, in 2020, we uh, had announced that uh, we uh, had a successful proponent uh, in terms of the HUPEG group. 2021, we approved uh, a downtown entertainment precinct master plan. And, and now, out of that plan, there'll be numerous uh, discussions that go on, including uh, discussions between, uh, you know, the proponents for, to uh, make some renovations to the facility and, and the tenants. And we expect that uh, there'll be some level of disruption, as there would be with any major projects, uh, LRT to some of the waterfronts, uh, major road construction, but they end up, in the end, leading to significant benefits for the, for the taxpayer, and that's who we have in mind. There are three, you know, apart from concerts and other events at the arena, there are three main tenants of First Ontario Centre, the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Honey Badgers, the Toronto Rock. We found out in an article that uh, Scott Radley wrote with the Hamilton Spectator that the respective owners of those teams didn't really know about what was going on, which seems a tad concerning. Well, I, I, um, I'll preface it by saying that these are discussions that the city is, is not part of, so we're watching with, with great interest. You know, there's, there's always been an expectation that there'll be renovations and construction would have some impact on, on current tenants of the First Ontario Centre, and that also includes the exploratory phase of, of what the level of those renovations will be. You know, we would expect the, uh, you know, the parties to engage uh, the major tenants and make every effort to accommodate them and ensure renovations are as non-disruptive as possible. But, I mean, in the end... Uh, this is a significant investment, and, and there will be, as you, as you point out, likely a period of short-term pain for long-term gain. But at the end, um, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars of benefit um, for the, uh, the city taxpayers. We're talking about uh, facilities that will undergo major redevelopment. And uh, if you take a look at the skyline in downtown Hamilton with all the cranes and, and the like, it's, uh, Hamilton has well and truly been discovered by investors, so I'm, I'm not surprised by the level of interest. We're chatting about the upcoming renovations at Hamilton's First Ontario Centre on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Matthew Grant, Director of Communications and Strategic Initiatives with the City of Hamilton. Once the construction begins, we know that those teams that I mentioned won't be able to play in the facility. Will the city offer any assistance, either financial or, or choosing or helping set up a facility they can play? But, you know, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on what's going to be desired and what's going to be needed moving forward. I think we, it's, we, we need to keep our eye on, on the discussions that are happening now. And those will indicate, you know, the length of disruption, how, you know, what would be needed, um, whether or not the, the facility could be used in, in part or in whole. I, I don't think that there's answers to those questions right now. But uh, as these discussions can, you know, continue, uh, which, you know, we're, we're uh, looking forward to the outcome, then we'll have a, we'll, we'll have a, a much better view as to what will be required when that's completed. At the end of the day, the city is prepared to work with these teams, though, to keep them in the city and, and play their games within our boundary, right? We don't want to see them go to Burlington or St. Catharines or elsewhere. Is that fair to say? Oh, oh well, I, I mean, as, as personally, as, a, as a, a newer resident of Hamilton and a big fan of the Hamilton Bulldogs, uh, congratulations on their victory. 
Uh, I mean, of course, we would we would love to see teams come and stay here. I mean, we just had the addition of the of the Rock, who've come to Hamilton. Good decision on, on their part, I would suggest. And uh, you know, the, the the reason we want to invest uh, in these major facilities is because we know there's going to be increasing demand down the line for these kinds of of amenities. And uh, that's that's one of the reasons for the deal. On, on top of that, you know, we're looking at uh, you know five hundred million dollars worth of redevelopment in the downtown area, including um, some uh, a percentage for affordable housing units and and investments that the city used to have to make in these facilities can be redirected to other priorities, including affordable housing. Well, we all know at the end of the day, if uh, the injection is $100, $500000000 million, this arena, the downtown, is going to be absolutely turned on its head and in a good way. Matthew, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for your interest. That's Matthew Grant, Director of Communications and Strategic Initiatives with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As more and more people seek assistance from food banks to help make ends meet, as we know, the cost of living has skyrocketed over the last year, especially, if not a couple of years. Hamilton's Neighbor to Neighbor Center is staring at a funding shortfall to the tune of $100,000. Krista Dow is the Director of Community Food and Family Services at Neighbor to Neighbor Center and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Krista, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How did you mm-hmm. get to this point? What's been happening? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, for uh, firstly, I want to acknowledge that the city funding from public health was instrumental in establishing Neighbors to Neighbors Hamilton Community Food Center here. And for six years, they've really helped us make the space beautiful, um, you know, bring in a plethora of diverse programs. We focus on programming that builds community, provides education, builds skills. Um, and we see good food as a tool to improve health and wellness, bring people together. So this, rightly so, after this, after our six years of seed funding, from public health, we were um, asked to apply to city enrichment funding, which is um, completely appropriate. And applying to city enrichment funding meant that um, we were asking for all of our programs to continue to be funded. Um, but unfortunately, not all of them were. It's uh, it's a function of that that fund. Um, there's just so much need and so many requests right now um, that they weren't able to accommodate all of our requests. So it does leave us with a budget shortfall. And that's, yeah, that's where we're at right now. And uh, so this is, is this only affecting the Hamilton Community Food Center and the and the food network that you have? Well, certainly not. Like, absolutely. Uh, what I understand is that um, there were $3.5 million worth of requests in um, for city enrichment. And uh, like less than that was, uh, less than that was, was provided uh, so that there's are there are definitely other organizations i think what we're seeing now is so many people are feeling squeezed inflation isn't keeping up with incomes um, and we're seeing much more demand for services uh through citywide so uh no this isn't just unique to our food center um but it is something that uh you know what what we're seeing at, at our hamilton food center yeah is definitely something that we need to think of and what programs are going to be able to continue. We're really committed to keeping all of our programs in place for this coming year. Yeah, and I I don't know how other organizations are dealing with any kind of um, budget shortfalls or budget cuts. Yeah. 
It certainly is a struggle, yes, for many, including those at uh, Neighbor to Neighbor Center. You can find uh, mm-hmm. more information online, N2, the number two, N2Ncenter.com. We're in discussion with Krista Du, the Director of Community, uh, Food, and Family Services at Neighbor to Neighbor Center. What will happen if this funding shortfall is not addressed? If, you know, you, you do some fundraising and you just can't close the gap, what's the impact? Well, the impact will be for the probably not this year, but next year we'll have to really look at what programs, um, well, what programs we maybe reduce. Um, one of our some of the major areas that um, that were not funded at this point were the Hamilton Community Garden Network, and that supports. Right now, we're supporting 63 um, gardens across the city of Hamilton Community Gardens. Um, and each year we distribute between 5,000 to 8,000 in resource boost. We do, um, we help new community gardens start up. Um, we provide consultation and we just really um, manage and keep that network going. Um, that's one area that we'll have to look at um, whether or not we can continue to do that. Our youth community kitchens were another one that were not funded. So that is, um, that is something that I think that we're really committed to um, making sure that we get funding for because we know that youth in our community are, you know, like the, the services and supports for youth is, is just a really, really important investment. Um, we know it's been such a challenging year for so many people. Um, and I think some of our children and youth are, have been affected the most, right, with um, school closures and um, virtual online. And, you know, there's, there's just so many, so many needs for wellness and, and health supports. Yeah, and then our affordable produce markets and meals are really around that like food security piece. Um, so we'd have to look at like, you know, what we can do to sort of tighten our belts, not not unlike what you would do in your own household, right? So just in terms of um, reducing some of our food costs, which is really hard at this point in time, um, but strengthening local food systems and maybe looking at ways that we can, you know, purchase food that that you know just try try to reduce our budget on what we spend for food so those kinds of things um, but still maintaining quality and still maintaining um you know nutritional you know nutritional um standards for folks so we know Those that, are some of our considerations. <laughs> yeah, th- there's a lot going on. Uh, there are yeah. a, lot, a lot of balls in the air, that's for sure. We know that yeah. Hamilton is a very giving community, whether it's through volunteering or even, you know, when times are tough, uh, people will dig down deep and, and offer assistance uh, financially or otherwise. How can our listeners help Neighbor to Neighbor Center? Yeah, absolutely. I think if, if anyone is interested in getting involved, um, if they go to our website, there are definitely ways to get involved, whether it's through volunteering with us, um, whether whether it's to becoming um, coming onto one of our uh, fundraisers, we do um, a coldest coldest night of the year walk uh, every February of every year, and that's uh, uh, just an amazing fundraiser for us. Um, even coming and supporting our bookstore um, at Twenty Eight Athens location helps us out. Yeah, or donating to the community food center directly um, through a monetary donation is always always uh, incredibly appreciated. Absolutely. I would imagine that you're seeing a lot more people visit the center with, uh, you know, the price of food going up, um, mm-hmm. higher inflation, interest rates, gas prices. It, it costs more to live these days. What That's kind right. of impact are you seeing at the center? A lot more people? Absolutely. We, we are seeing that all services are really um, are stretched right now. Um, we're seeing, I think this is across the board, what I'm hearing from an emergency food system is that um, there are folks coming to the um, to food banks who have never um, have never used food banks before. It's just that the small margin of, of 
of change that we're seeing um, is creating a huge impact on, on families and households. We also know that like emergency food isn't something, it's really about income, right? So looking at some of those bigger systemic issues and, um, you know, folks who are living, who are the, the, the living in poverty, the, the greatest depth of poverty, um, folks on social assistance, folks on Ontario disability supports. Um, these are folks who are working poor. These are the folks who are experiencing sort of the, the greatest squeeze right now and looking at like how we can advocate um, to our government for increased social supports for people is really imp- an important piece of this puzzle, right? Because um, we can keep offering more and more and more services, but at the end of the day, it's, it's an income issue. Absolutely. Krista, mm-hmm. thank you for shining a light on what's happening at Neighbor to Neighbor Center. Uh, hopefully we can add some assistance and get people uh, excited about helping you guys out. Enjoy the rest of the day and good luck thank down you. the road. Yep. Thanks very much, Rick. Take care. You too. Krista Dow, Director of Community Food and Family Services at Neighbor to Neighbor Center. You can find them online, n2ncenter.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Oh, someone turned down the heat already. Whew, it is smoking hot out there. Already 26 degrees. Getting up to a high of 32, it'll feel like 40 today. Under a nice, warm blanket of sunshine. More than warm. Scorching hot blanket. Some relief on the way from what we hear. We'll get a little rain tonight, but a little more heat tomorrow as well. So how long is this going to last? And if you haven't been paying attention, what the heck is going on in Europe? Here to answer these questions is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist with Global News. Anthony, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's been a busy couple of days just with everything that's going on locally and, and yeah across uh, across the northern hemisphere. I, I would imagine. How did this heat wave develop? And more importantly, how much longer is it going to last? Well, well, for us, it's, it's been something we've been watching for a while. It was in the prairies. It's been a very hot weekend and early in the week, and and they've had thunderstorms as well. That's something that uh, has been a common occurrence across the southern prairies from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, heavy rain, even tornadoes and hail. Um, for us, we haven't had too much storm activity, but we also haven't really had the heat and humidity this July until recently. So today is, is a very hot one. You mentioned that Humidex of 40 and then uh, we have a cold front that's going to come through, and, and that's a whole other topic with the risk of uh, severe weather, even tornado threat, especially back just to our west. So we're going to keep an eye on that, but that'll knock down the humidity for tomorrow, and then it heats back up uh, heading into the into the weekend. Friday and Saturday both look uh, humid and, and rather hot. So we're just on the edge. We're, we're, we're just basically uh, getting a taste of it and then it retreats back south of the border but for our neighbors in oklahoma kansas texas uh it has just been oppressive and and there's really not much end in sight for them we've heard the term uh, heat wave uh we've also heard the term heat dome are those one in the same uh, they, they pretty much are. Uh, a heat dome uh, basically is is just this, this ridge of high pressure that extends way up into the atmosphere and basically prevents anything from, from, <laughs> from uh, moving through. So right now we're getting cold fronts that come through every couple of days. Even in the UK, it, it, you can call it a heat dome. But, but it's not the same stationary feature that we had last year in B.C. over, over Lytton, where we had those record high temperatures. That 
stayed a long time and it basically fed back on itself every day becoming a little bit hotter than the prior so this isn't the same situation but uh, once you get south of the border uh, yeah it maybe is is a heat dome that that i think is going to linger for some time ouch our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml anthony farnell chief meteorologist global news you can check him out uh, on global news at 5 30 and 6 you mentioned the uk most likely known for its dreary, gloomy, rainy, kind of mild conditions, but they're smashing temperature records. What's going on? Yeah, it was uh, just incredible to see the last couple of days. And if you've been to the UK, you've been to any of the hotels or, or uh, stayed at a residence, most of them don't have air conditioning. They just are, they maybe once or twice a year get up into the low 30s and, and they, they embrace it. They say, okay, let's, let's get out, uh, let's get a tan, uh, and then it'll be gone. But uh, boy, the last couple of days, yesterday in particular, uh, breaking, I think, 30 plus locations broke the all time. Uh, high temperature record for the UK. So uh, 40.3 is now the number that that they're saying uh, is the new record. The old was a 38.7. So it's just a unbelievable heat, and it was a very dry atmosphere. And it's been dry for much of the summer, so the fires erupted, similar to what we saw in BC, and they're still fighting that in, in not just the UK, but much of Western Europe as as the temperature starts to retreat a little bit. Yeah, it is wild. Hopefully some relief is on the way for those residents. I was watching uh, Global News at 5.30 the other day. You were in your garden just outside the studio picking up, I think it was a radish or garlic. Um, <laughs> any tips for gardeners during these kind of heat events? What should they be doing with their crops and with their flowers and plants? Yeah, I mean, gardeners uh, and farmers, in, in one way they're the same, but gardeners can often uh, use a hose and, and get <laughs> get most things irrigated pretty quickly. So uh, when it's this hot, I, I know if you have lettuce, if you have radishes, if you have uh, some herbs, they tend to bolt. So they come up very quickly. They start to turn a bit bitter, the leaves. So that's that's not basically a friend to hot temperatures. Same thing if you have snow peas that are left or sugar peas. Uh, they're, they're not going to love these temperatures. Other things like tomatoes and peppers, a lot of the hot weather plants actually thrive. And you may see, uh, especially after the rain we had early this week, that there's just this rapid growth. Cucumbers are doing well as well. So it, it just depends on the plant. But uh, one thing, if, if you have a susceptible garden that maybe gets too much sun, you could try shading it uh, or just make sure you water early in the morning or, or in the evening. But really, morning is best because if you water it later in the evening, the leaves get wet and they sometimes stay wet all night and, and you can have mildew and, and other pests and diseases uh, attacking your, your plants. And while we're at it, we can hose ourselves off as well. Uh, Anthony, always, there you go. <laughs> always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Stay cool. All right, you too. That is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist at Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've heard the stories. You've seen the photos, probably some videos as well, of the the chaos, the carnage at airports, especially those here in Canada. So it should come as no surprise that many Canadians are postponing their travel plans as airports, including Pearson just down the highway, continue to deal with more turbulence. And that is bearing out in a new survey from Ipsos Public Affairs. And joining us to talk about it is the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, Sean Simpson. Sean, welcome back to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. 
a lot of angry travelers responded to your survey, apparently. <laughs> so we found them all, yes. <laughs> what did you We're find? We here that uh, 58% are avoiding airports until the situation improves. And, you know, that we might say, well, you know, boo-hoo, uh, what they're not willing to stand in line or, you know, whatever the case may be. But we have to remember, it's been a long two years with a pandemic. This is the first time in two years that we've had a relatively free summer that Canadians feel... Uh, you know, it's safe enough to travel, and the fact that now many are put between a rock and a hard place, and that rock and the hard place is that you can show up at an airport three, four hours early and hope that you get on your flight, hope that your bag arrives on time, or you can cancel yet again another vacation. You also found, and I found this one interesting too, 70% feel that we should be ashamed on the global stage about what's happening in airports. Yeah, they're calling it a national embarrassment. That's a pretty strong indictment of the, of the situation. But 7 in 10 say what's going on right now is a national embarrassment. And, you know, they're not completely uh, devoid of, of empathy or sympathy here. Uh, you know, there's a slim majority who say it would have been very difficult to predict the pace of the rebound uh, for travel demand here. And so it's at least partially understandable that that uh, airports are having a hard time picking up but when we ask people whether they believe canada is doing better than uh, other countries around the world at, at managing the situation a very strong majority disagree that that's the case in fact believing that canada is lagging behind its international counterparts like the u.s and the uk for example not sure how much of uh, into the nitty-gritty you got but I, I would imagine that the luggage chaos is one of the biggest issues Oh, certainly, certainly. And, and uh, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, so when it comes to baggage delays or lost baggage, for example, uh, Canadians blame uh, both airlines and airports pretty well equally uh, for, for mucking that up. When it comes to uh, delays at check-in counters, they think it's, air, it's the airline's problem. When it's delays at security checkpoints, they think it's the airport's problem. When it comes to delays at customs coming back into Canada, they're blaming the federal government. And in fact, 39% of Canadians blame everybody, blame all of them, including Canadian travelers, fellow travelers who perhaps they think are are out of practice, are not keeping up with the ever-evolving requirements uh, of us, uh, you know, Arrive Can app, vaccine passports, and you know, all of those things that, that seem to be changing quite quite frequently. So there's a lot of blame to go around, and uh, Canadians are noticing that everybody seems to be a little short on solutions. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, Sean Simpson is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sean is the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. They have a new survey out that shows many Canadians are postponing their travel plans as airports continue to deal with more turbulence. You mentioned that uh, all, all these people who responded to the survey are, are you know, pointing the finger at various places. Is the political fallout maybe not as big as uh, some might think it is then? Well, for the for the uh, airport issue alone, I would say probably not. But what our polling is showing is that uh, a majority believe that the airport issue is just the start of a bunch of problems with the delivery of basic public services here in Canada. For example, it seems to take forever to get a passport <laughs> these days. We've got airport issues. We've got 
uh, inflation that seems to be running out of control. We've got any number of of of, of issues, ERs, the, you know, the situation in our in our hospitals. They're all seem to be um, symptomatic or emblematic of of a wider problem, and 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 Canadians believe that. Um, the, that governments seem to be neglecting uh, basic services and, because they're focused on on the wrong issues, uh, and um, and I think that is what Canadians will be upset about. Not just one thing, airports that maybe you can be forgiven for not having been prepared, but all of these other issues. Come on, where have you been the last two years? You know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the government seems to have an inability to look into the future to anticipate problems and to, to, to then be proactive at coming up with solutions. If there is a light at the end of the tunnel, or, or I guess less turbulence on the horizon, and we only have about a minute to discuss this, most Canadians do believe this is just a, a brief glitch, so to speak. That's right. 55% uh, say we think this is temporary, we expect everything to be back to normal by September, but that leaves 45%, almost half, who... Uh, are not so sure that this is the case. Not so sure that uh, simply when summer travelers are done hitting the hitting the skies, things will go back to normal. And perhaps believing that this issue is 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 more systemic than uh, than fifty five percent believe. Well, let's hope those uh, clear skies are ahead. Sean, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Sean Simpson, the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. Many Canadians postponing their travel plans as airports continue to deal with, well, a a bumpy scenario from all facets of the travel industry. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Well, today marks the 53rd anniversary of the moon landing. It comes as a jacket worn by the only surviving member of the Apollo 11 mission is set to fetch some big bucks at auction. Let's go back into our time capsule with Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy at York University. Paul, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Yes, a nice July celebration at hand. 53 years later, what comes to mind when you think about the moon landing? I still can remember that black and white grainy image squinting literally to see Armstrong uh, clinging to the leg of the lunar lambda just as he set foot upon the moon. You could hear him just fine, but oh gosh, that image was tough to see, but I remember it ever so well. It was the height of the Cold War. Um, Why was it so important for NASA and for America to get to the moon before the Soviet Union? Was it just to assert dominance, or was it greater than that? Um, It certainly was prestige. Uh, The the Soviet Union had uh, outpaced the U.S. for most of the 1960s. They put the first satellite in orbit, the first human in orbit, the first woman in orbit. The the list of firsts was really quite stunning. And at that point in time, everybody was really surprised and very concerned, as you say, the height of the Cold War, that the U.S. seemed to be so far behind, technologically speaking. That changed as the 60s unfolded. A blank check from Congress certainly helped that. Uh, by the end of the decade, certainly the Soviets were clearly 
behind NASA, uh, and when Armstrong set foot upon the moon, it was not only the, the culmination of, of Kennedy's uh, requirement, if you will, from 1961 to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, but it was, as you say, to reassert dominance that uh, the, quote, free world, the West, really could do what it needed to do when push came to shove. There are still, to this day, conspiracy theories that this never happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have that conversation in class on many, many occasions. Yeah. It is surprising the legs, the, the longevity that conspiracy theory has had. Uh, but the bottom line to it is that back in the 60s, you did not have the technological capability to go ahead and make such a fabrication. And even if we did, why would the Soviet Union have gone along with it? I mean, there was this concept called radar. You could track these sorts of things. Why would the Soviets let you know, NASA go ahead and uh, reproduce this hoax Six times, by the way, not just Apollo 11, <laughs> but right through to Apollo 17. No, we went to the moon. We brought back 400 kilograms of moon rock. And the, the excitement that that endeared to all of us in the 60s was real, absolutely real. Absolutely. Paul Delaney is our guest, professor of astronomy at York University. We're talking about the 53rd anniversary today of the moon landing. Is there something about the Apollo 11 mission that most people don't know about? Oh, gosh, um, they don't know about. Well, there were all sorts of last-minute snags that, uh, you know, going down to the lunar surface that people may not have heard about, Armstrong wrestling control from the onboard computer system, and I use that term very carefully, computer system. Uh, you know, he, he basically had to fly the lunar module away from the pre-programmed landing site and put it down with only about 30 seconds of fuel left uh, that was certainly a dramatic end to the landing. There was always the contingency plans, if you will, if something had gone wrong and the astronauts were stranded. There was a whole speech written uh, that Nixon would have given if, in fact, the astronauts had been stranded on the moon. I mean, there were lots of little nuances uh, that happened as uh, uh, Aldrin was clambering back into the lunar module. He actually knocked oh, knocked. Uh, out of place one of the onboard circuit breakers and there was serious concern that the engines actually would not fire they actually had to use a ballpoint pen to reset the circuit breaker lots of little stories i mean the technology in the late 60s while it was done good it really isn't a shadow of what we have today yet we flew to the moon very very successfully with that technology so lots of little things like that happened boy if they were stranded on the moon that would have been what well, that would have been something it would have been curtains. There's no question in the world about that. And that would have been a, a terribly sad end to the whole whole expedition uh, through the 1960s. Didn't happen, though. And, uh, you know, we never lost anybody to the moon, despite the best efforts of Apollo 13. I mean, you know, that was NASA's most successful failure. Uh, we thought we were going to lose those astronauts, but that didn't happen either. Paul Delaney is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Paul is the professor of astronomy at York University, and we're talking about the moon landing, the 53rd anniversary today. There is a jacket that Buzz Aldrin wore during that space flight that is now going on the auction block, and some believe it could fetch as much as $2 million. Paul, if money was no object, what piece of memorabilia would you want from that mission? Oh, wow. That's 
that's a great question uh, because I don't have that money, so I've never really <laughs> even thought about it. <laughs> you know, when all is said and done, I'd love to have a piece of moon rock. I mean, to have a piece of the of the universe sitting on my dining room table. But of course, the astronauts don't have that. I guess if if it came down to it, the mission patch, I always loved the mission patch of Apollo 11. That was with the eagle flying down to the lunar surface to the Sea of Tranquility, having a mission patch that I knew had gone to the moon would probably be enough for me. I mean, I'd never wear the jacket, I'd never wear the gloves, but I could frame the Apollo 11 mission patch. That, I guess, would be the piece of memorabilia I would like to buy. And it'd be cheaper than a jacket, too. Very much so. It sounds like uh, space agencies around the world are eager to go back to the moon. Why? Finally, finally. Talk about missed opportunities 50 years ago. We did all the hard work in getting to the moon, and then everybody sort of said, been there, done that, packed up and left, filed away the plans to the Saturn V, lost them. And here we are 50 years later, finally with Artemis wanting to go back. I mean, lots of good reasons to go back, in my opinion. I mean, putting aside the terrific science that we can do there of being able to examine another object in space, not just the Earth, to be able to do the science in an airless environment uh, and so on. Uh, the, the sheer opportunity to do some uh, experimentation with respect to the type of habitats that you need to go to Mars. The moon can be a terrific proving ground, just as the International Space Station has been a terrific proving ground for all sorts of technologies. So, too, does the moon offer us that opportunity in what I think is going to be our very near-term uh, flight to Mars. There are mining opportunities, helium-3, various rare metals on the moon. The opportunity to utilize the moon, I think, is, is very near at hand. People, when we started launching satellites in the early 1960s, didn't realize how dependent we were going to become on it. I mean, everybody uses GPS every day. The technology in your cell phones arguably had its genesis in the 1960s with the space race. Going to the moon, to me, is going to be the same thing if we stay there, not just uh, uh, go there for a couple of hours and come back. To establish a settlement on the moon, I think, has terrific potential economically as well as scientifically. I know we're running a little bit late on time, but I have to ask you about the James Webb Telescope photos. Your first reaction to seeing those photos? Other than, wow, <laughs> uh, it was, phew, <laughs> after 20 years and watching the trials and tribulations of James Webb to be able to see the engineering supremacy that that telescope achieved was just amazing. Those images were everything astronomers had ever wanted them to be, and then some. So it was both awe and relief sort of mixed in about equal amounts there when those images came out last week. Paul, great chat as always. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day. Yes, indeed. You too. That is Paul Delaney, Professor of Astronomy at York University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.